Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Our guest today is Raihan Salam. He is the executive editor at National Review and the author of a new book, Melting Pot or Civil War, uh, A Son of Immigrants Makes the Case Against Open Borders. Uh, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Basic question to start. What's the book about? I, I take it it's not a cookbook for Thanksgiving. That is correct. This book is about the long-run implications of American immigration policy for uh, our civic health, for how we approach the global economy in the decades to come, about how we think about some of our ethnic and cultural divides, and much else. So there's obviously a lot of discussion about immigration in recent years. Uh, there's a number of books on the subject. Your book seems to focus pretty heavily, especially in the early part, on the experiences and the fate of children of immigrants, so na- native-born, second-generation Americans, uh, and how they do or don't get integrated into the economy and the broader culture. So what is it uh, that you think has been left out of the discussion about the second generation? Well, basically, I think about the second generation a lot because uh, I myself am a second generation American, and I've seen pretty serious differences across folks second-generation folks who've grown up uh, in different circumstances. When you think about immigrants as an undifferentiated category, you're missing something really important, which is that if you arrive in the United States with skills that are prized by American employers, if you arrive in the country in a way that you're rubbing shoulders with folks from other groups, uh, you feel as though the American dream is open to you, you feel as though you're able to navigate American life successfully, then that's going to affect how you raise your kids as well, and whether or not they feel included in the American mainstream, the resources that they have at their disposal, the social networks that they have at their disposal. And you know, one big thing to keep in mind is this. If you're an immigrant, whether you are a poor immigrant or a rich immigrant, whether you're an educated immigrant or a not-so-educated immigrant, you know, fundamentally you are deciding to uproot yourself, to build a new and different life. You've selected yourself. Uh, you know, so, so you're someone who's already said, okay, you know, I get it. It might be a little bit tough. You know, I might be at the bottom um, of this social hierarchy here, but that's not really what matters to me that much because I'm already an adult. I've already had a life. I already have a sense of who I am and what I'm about and what I care about. And I know what I'm here to do. What I'm here to do is, for example, uh, to build a better life for me and my family. I'm here because I know that, you know, relative to being in, let's say, Bangladesh or Guatemala or Nigeria or Slovakia, uh, you know, I'm going to be able to offer my kid a somewhat better life by virtue of being here. That's a really kind of powerful an empowering kind of feeling to have. But when you're the kid of that person, you have a somewhat different experience. You did not choose to uproot yourself. You're someone who's grown up in the United States. And there you have a pretty big difference because if you're growing up in America, in a middle-class, prosperous kind of neighborhood, if you don't feel as though your ethnicity is determining your fate, how people treat you, how people see you, that's a really, really big thing. You know, then you can feel like, hey, I can successfully navigate American life. I'm fully a part of it. 
But then if you grew up in a different kind of immigrant household where, you know, you grew up really poor, you grew up in maybe a pretty segregated community, you didn't necessarily grow up around a lot of people who had that kind of cultural and social capital that allowed them to climb the American social ladder, you know, then you're starting out life with a pretty big and pretty serious disadvantage. That does not mean that you won't overcome that disadvantage. You absolutely could. But it, it, we would be naive to think that somehow immigrants are like superhuman beings, uh, you know, where the kind of path of their family life is just utterly different from every other kind of human being. It's simply not the case. Immigrants are like the rest of us. You know, they take a few more risks. Absolutely. You know, they're willing to uproot themselves. That's really impressive. But, you know, fundamentally, they're still shaped by their families. They're still shaped by their life experiences. And that's doubly true of their native-born American children. So that was, you know, my big thing. I just wanted to say, look, let's be a tiny bit less romantic about immigration, and let's try to be a bit more hard-headed about what it actually translates into on a day-to-day basis as the native-born children of immigrants are trying to become successful themselves. So it seemed to me uh, that your book, and this is kind of true in immigration in that there are, you know, broadly pro-immigration forces on on both the, the, the right and the left, and they have slightly different arguments, but, you know, they kind of converge in the same place. And even though from natural view and from your writings, you're obviously a, a right of center guy, you did, I think, make the case that some sort of government assistance is going to be necessary in order to integrate immigrants if we want to have the kind of society that that we have historically had in America in terms of, you know, an egalitarian society. Uh, You draw an interesting contrast in the book between the immigration systems of Canada and Qatar, which might have more of a libertarian type approach to immigration. So could could you just talk a little bit about, you know, Canada, we think of, of as this kind of, you know, left wing paradise, perhaps, and Qatar or the Middle East, you know, we don't really think of about what their immigration policy is. But, you know, what are those two different approaches and how does that reflect the different philosophies of the countries? Well, you've you've thrown out a few different really interesting ideas. You know, one quick thing I'll say is that actually when you're thinking about American history, um, you know, a really, really key factor is that through much of American history, we had very high native birth rates. And having very high native birth rates actually matters a lot in the immigration context because if the typical family is having, let's say, six kids, and that's a real number that you saw in the 1850s, for example, then immigration isn't quite as consequential in terms of how we think about our posterity, how we think about future generations. So if you know that a large majority of future Americans are going to be the descendants of you, people like you, people who share your cultural sensibilities, then, you know, you may think, yeah, okay, sure, I might defer gratification in this or that way. You know, I'm totally comfortable with that idea. But when you have very low native birth rates, even actually pretty modest inflows of immigration can elicit a pretty different response. So I think that when we talk about the arc of American history, it's important to understand all of the different ways that America today is a pretty darn different country from the America of a century ago or 150 years ago. In fact, you know, you could argue that in that very early period of the Republic, in the early 1800s, you had the Napoleonic Wars raging in Europe. And because of the Napoleonic Wars, you actually had 
pretty restrained migration from Europe, you also had very prolific native birth rates. So that was a period when you could say that America was becoming a more separate and distinct society from its British roots. It was becoming kind of distinctively American during that period of time. And if you didn't have that period, it's kind of funny to think about how differently American history might have unfolded. But, you know, I, I digress there. Now, you bring up Canada and Qatar, which are, you know, it's just a great contrast. So basically, Qatar is a country that, in a way, is kind of a, a paradise for libertarian folks who want a more open border system. That's a country where 90% of the workforce consists of foreign-born folks, not Qatari citizens. It's also a country where, you know, it's something like 70% of the total population consists of the foreign-born. And, you know, it, it's a place where you have people, you have temporary guest workers doing a lot of work that in some other countries might be done by machines. You know, and these are people who are absolutely better off than they would be in their native country. You know, oftentimes they come to Qatar for, let's say, five years, 10 years, 15 years. They come with the expectation of eventually going back to their native countries. There is zero expectation that they will, quote unquote, assimilate into Qatari life because Qatar is not going to grant them citizenship. They can't become naturalized citizens. In fact, they've only recently liberalized their laws so that if you are married to a Qatari citizen, maybe you could become a Qatari citizen yourself. And the reason that's the case, well, one reason is that being a Qatari citizen is really, really, really valuable. You get all kinds of valuable benefits. You know, there's a funny little story. Some years ago in California, a group of American Indian tribes started kicking people out of tribal membership on the grounds that they were not real members, they didn't have sufficiently deep ties, etc. Now, they hadn't done this for decades before. Why were they suddenly doing this? It's simple. A lot of California American Indian tribes now had lucrative casino gambling enterprises. And when you have those lucrative casino gambling enterprises, well, suddenly the stakes of being a member of that group go up a lot, right? Because I'm guaranteeing you scholarships for you and your kids. I'm guaranteeing you, you know, guaranteed payments just for being a member of the tribe. You know, you get to share in that largesse of the casino gambling. So Qatar is saying, hey, look, we have all this oil. You know, we want our citizens to benefit from it. Uh, We don't necessarily want these foreigners to benefit from it. So we'll let them come and work. But we're sure as heck not going to kind of share them into that kind of incredible largesse. Canada has some uh, something of a hybrid system where they're saying that, yeah, we're going to admit people on a permanent basis to become eventual citizens of our country. We're going to admit some other folks on a temporary basis too, a pretty small, modest number of people. But those temporary folks, we're going to take a page from Qatar and Singapore and other countries with big temporary guest worker programs, and we're going to stringently enforce the rules. If you overstay, you're going to go to jail for a year. I mean, they're really tough in how they enforce those rules. Canadian jail, though, so... (laughs) Uh, well, I mean, and look, also Canada has very tough visa rules too. Canada's rules in terms of to whom they grant visas are much more stringent than in the United States because they're thinking, hey, we don't want people to overstay a non-immigrant visa. So we're going to be really careful about the folks we allow come in in the first place. So Canada actually has a pretty kind of tough immigration enforcement approach. So turning back to permanent immigration, what they say is that, okay, well, we want to see to it 
that the bulk of our permanent immigrants are people who are going to be able to enter the middle class, be able to make very significant economic contributions so that the benefits they receive are outweighed by the taxes they're going to pay over a lifetime. And so they, they've created this kind of point system. It's not a perfect point system, but it's a pretty decent point system where what you're essentially doing is you're giving guidelines to future immigrants. You're saying, okay, if you do X, Y, and Z, guess what? You move to the front of the line. And I've talked to a lot of folks uh, in many different countries, including folks in Canada, who say, yeah, you know, I have a relative in Canada, but that wasn't why I got my visa. That gave me uh, a few points for adaptability. But then beyond that, I had to demonstrate that I speak English fluently. I had to demonstrate that, you know, I have certain skills that are going to be prized in the Canadian marketplace uh, you know, and much else. And the funny thing is that this winds up being experienced as a less arbitrary, less crazy system than what we have in the United States. In the United States, oh, great, you have a you have a sibling? Okay, well, then you can go on this incredibly long wait list that might take you 10, 15 plus years to get through. Is there anything I could do to move up the wait list? Like, what if I got a great job offer? What if I speak English really well? What if I have some other skills? Uh, nope, sorry, nope. You're still on the wait list. Sorry, there's nothing you can do to improve your chances. It's a really crazy system when you think about it. And, you know, I mean, it's a system that was created for a totally different set of reasons. And now what it does um, is it just creates this kind of maddening complexity for people where all they want to do is know, okay, so you're telling me if I do these things, I can access the American labor market. Great. Sign me up. I'll do them. You don't even allow people to do those things. And that's one reason why the system, in my opinion, is, is just so nuts. Well, so I want to touch on a couple things. I think you've made a really compelling case about skilled immigration. Uh, but if I recall in your book, you, you made a, a point about Latin American immigrants that come to the United States at this point under the new sets of laws. They come and they tend to stay as opposed to come, do seasonal work, and then go home. Is there something that we could do as part of an overall plan that allows more cross-border seasonal work or coming and doing temporary work, but that confidence that a worker could go home and, and then still return in the future. Uh, so I'm pretty skeptical about that idea. I understand that there's a lot of support for the idea of circular migration, but uh, and there's a classic argument. Um, you know, Douglas Massey has made this argument among many others, and I think it has some truth to it, which is that intensified immigration enforcement interrupted those patterns of circularity. And that's one reason why you had a big surge in the unauthorized immigrant population, because people felt like, well, wait a second, if I can't safely go back and forth, then I might as well stay in the country. Uh, I guess my view is that there are other larger economic changes that have entered the picture since then uh, that have made circular migration uh, less of an issue. So when you think about the politics of immigration, one big change is that in the old days, uh, a big component, you, already, you always had humanitarians, you had the civil rights lobbies, ethnic lobbies, and what have you that wanted to have permissive immigration policies. But you also had employers, particularly you had low-wage employers in manufacturing and other sectors that really just kind of had a hunger, that had an appetite for, for a huge huge amount of kind of low-scale, low-wage labor. Uh, and the thing is that that constituency is not really there today in the same way it was um, in earlier areas in American history. It's still there, particularly in agriculture, but agriculture represents a really tiny sliver of the U.S. economy. You know, you have a bit of in tourism, but again, you know, this is not really a kind of dominant force, as dominant a force as, let's say, manufacturing was in the American economy in the 1900s. Uh, and that has meant, uh, and one reason that's the case is simply because of offshore 
offshoring. You know, you can now have most of the components of your washing machine, uh, maybe the entire washing machine manufactured in China or some other jurisdiction or in Mexico. You don't have to do it in the uh, manufacturing belt of the United States. So that's a really big change in both the politics and the economics of immigration. So circular migration is really about agriculture. And I've got to say, when you think about agriculture, this is another sector that is very susceptible to change. If you look at the Bracero uh, program, this is a program that brought in temporary seasonal laborers from Mexico. When you ended the Bracero program, it didn't suddenly create tons of jobs for native-born Americans who are looking to do back-breaking seasonal work, harvesting vegetables and what have you. No, I mean, it didn't. What happened is that those um, agriculturalists, they basically adopted existing mechanical harvesting technologies, which became more cost-effective when that source of labor dried up. Similarly, when you don't have that kind of circular migration pattern, what you see is just very different industries. Uh, for example, Japan, believe it or not, has a dairy industry. They have a pretty great dairy industry, but they have a dairy industry that relies more heavily on automation, more heavily on skilled labor than dairies in other parts of the world that rely on a huge amount of low-skill, low-wage labor. So I think that, you know, you've got to appreciate that the economy in a market-oriented society is dynamic. It changes in response to changing prices, changing technologies, and those technologies also will respond to the shape of the labor market. So, you know, this idea that, you know, there's this kind of like burning need for lots of seasonal labor, I guess I'm a little skeptical about it because if we really needed to import some vegetables, I think that would be okay. Or if we, you know, a, a deployed uh, lettuce bots and kind of other machines, if we used uh, hydroponics more heavily as they do in Australia, you know, these are all ways that we can adapt to meet the appetite for fresh fruits and vegetables without really bending our policies in a way that might prove on sustainable because, again, Canada is willing to enforce their guest worker policies very, very stringently. America has a more civil libertarian culture, and the truth is that a lot of guest worker programs have evolved where folks who used to be, you know, used to aspire to being circular migrants, now they want to bring their families with them. Uh, and so that's something that has been a big change. All right. Well, so you brought up the, the point about bringing your family with you, or I guess in the spirit of uh, the latest headlines, making babies here in the United States. What, what's your take on the, the idea of the president issuing an executive order ending birthright citizenship? Uh, I think it's a mistake. Uh, so uh, in the past, I have floated the idea that an amendment to the Constitution that both allows Congress to revise the rules of birthright citizenship and that would allow naturalized citizens to run for president, uh, you know, currently naturalized citizens are barred from running for president of the United States, you know, would be a reasonable thing to do. Uh, first of all, I just am not convinced that the president is able to revise the rules of birthright citizenship through executive order. I'm not convinced that Congress can do it through legislation, but, you know, that's obviously uh, another question. And I realize that there's a serious live debate uh, about this issue. But also, uh, you know, I think that uh, the reason I was sympathetic to revising birthright citizenship is in the past is because of concerns um, about amnesty. So I believe that we need some kind of amnesty for the long resident unauthorized population in the United States. I think we need it politically. I don't think we're going to be able to move to a new immigration system without addressing that. And I also think that there are genuine humanitarian issues raised by folks in mixed status families, uh, folks who, 
you know, really, you know, came of age at a time when uh, we were not enforcing our immigration laws. And so it was reasonable to expect that, uh, you know, hey, OK, I'm going to build a life here. Um, so there are all sorts of reasons why I believe that to be true. But people who don't want serial amnesties, I'm one of them. People who don't want this next amnesty be the first of several to come want to know that we're going to have some big definitive break. And revising the rules of birthright citizenship is one way to signal that. But, you know, my concern is this. When you don't have birthright citizenship of the kind we have right now, this kind of unqualified birthright citizenship, then you have the risk of creating a class of stateless persons. And that's something that could create further difficulties for America down the road. So my current view is that what you really want to do is have some kind of grand bargain, some kind of real compromise that addresses the concerns of folks who want rigorous, stringent enforcement. And that's how you address this problem, by nipping into the bud. Yeah, it's always seemed to me that Getting rid of birthright citizenship is is kind of, in a sense, admission of defeat on uh, immigration enforcement in the first place, because, you know, what you're saying is, well, we can't keep people from coming into the country illegally, at least with respect to the illegal side of things. Uh, Obviously, legal immigrants, you know, it's a different issue, but a little bit harder, I think, to make that case. Yeah, I think that that's a very, I think that's, that's a very sound way to, to look at it. Um, I do think that, um, in a way, talk of birthright citizenship um, is really a reflection of, uh, you know, the sense that we can't actually make enforcement work, which I actually think is wrong. I think that there are lots of ways we can improve enforcement, particularly if we were to focus on recent violators. Um, And the problem now is that by fixating on long resident unauthorized immigrants by creating horror stories, you actually make it harder to build a consensus around enforcement against recent violators. I think that that's been a very big uh, political miscalculation on the part of folks on the restrictionist side of the debate. Uh, you know, kind of, I'm sympathetic. Uh, you know, I really do think that you need stringent enforcement. But in any political operation, what you want to do is address sympathetic plaintiffs. Because when you have lots of sympathetic plaintiffs, you undermine the policy. What you really want to do is say, okay, let's address the sympathetic plaintiffs. Let's move very carefully, deliberately, and methodically to build trust in the system. And then you can expand the policy from there because you have not had these horror stories. You have not created the sense that we're pursuing this policy in a shambolic, uh, careless, capricious way. That's the opposite, uh, in my opinion, of how the Trump administration has been approaching its immigration policy, unfortunately. Do you think that it would be useful to to have like a standardized test and, and grading system where people show what their skills are, what their sort of social capital is, in a way that makes it more standardized rather than arbitrary? And maybe by doing that, that might create sort of a cottage industry in some of these other countries where people start to learn and test how they can become American, and maybe that would have some interesting consequences there locally too. Right, and I think that one of the implications of what you're saying is that when you have a test of that sort, it's pretty easy to game the test over time. You see this with the TOEFL test, for example. You have large numbers of foreign students who come to the United States under the premise that they can uh, speak, write, uh, and read English fluently, and it turns out not to be the case. There is a veritable cottage industry uh, of folks um, you know, who are manipulating the tests and what have you. I mean, that's, that's just a, a kind of sad reality. Uh, when you teach to the test... <laughs> You know, it's really important that the test is actually a pretty sound one, a pretty good one. So I resist that idea of some kind of single test. Uh, what I propose is a pretty, um, uh, you know, kind of straightforward point system in which you're looking at a variety 
uh, of different characteristics uh, of the intending immigrant. Uh, and one pretty big and important one, and, and this is part of uh, the Raise Act from Tom Cotton and David Perdue, is to take into account job offers. Now, you know, there's a lot of talk about how, well, Raihan, what about folks who don't necessarily have a college degree or a graduate degree, but who are exceptionally bright and who could command a high income, etc.? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that that's totally true. That's why you can factor in a job offer. If I'm someone who is a trapeze artist who left school in the fifth grade, uh, but, you know, kind of who is being offered uh, a gajillion dollars because I'm so incredible, that's a market test that, you know, should be taken into account. I think that makes perfect sense. Because, you know, one of the concerns is that we want to balance a few different competing considerations. If we are going to welcome some number of humanitarian migrants as refugees, as asylees, etc., then I think it's reasonable to say that people who are entering um, on other grounds, we should expect that they do not depend on the safety net in the same way that we would, of course, expect a refugee or an asylee to depend on the safety net. Yeah, I mean, you're someone who's been traumatized. So, okay, fair enough. But the problem now is that there's a large number of folks who enter the country on the basis of family ties, and they wind up really needing, uh, after some years in the country, they wind up really needing safety net benefits. They wind up needing refundable tax credits to ensure that they can lead decent and dignified lives in America. To me, that's something that does not engender trust in the system. I think there are a lot of Americans who would say that, yeah, I mean, of course, you know, a refugee or an asylee, yeah, they're going to need some help. But wait a second, someone who is sponsored by a relative? You know, if you look at federal law, there is the uh, rule of sponsor deeming. That is, if you sponsor someone, you have to have a certain, uh, you have to pass a certain income threshold. And then you're also supposed to have sponsor recovery. That is, if the relative who is sponsored then relies on benefits, then the government is supposed to be allowed to recover some money. That's never happened in practice. Why? Because it's unadministrable. You can't really do that. So one way to think about a point system is that you're actually trying to factor those things in on an ex-ante basis. There are definitely some problems to it, but you know, there's another benefit, which is that if you come into the country as an H-1B visa holder, uh, you know, for example, you might be able to get a job offer, and then you have a much more coherent, straightforward way to get a green card than right now, when you have to go through a crazy rigmarole that just totally doesn't make any sense, is totally maddening, uh, excuse me, is maddening, is even Kafka-esque in many cases. So what you're really doing is just giving people a straightforward guide. It's not quite as straightforward as writing a single standardized test, but by making it you know, a little bit more diverse, by taking job offers into account, then I think you're making it a little bit more resilient and robust. So I wanted to ask a, kind of a broader question. Uh, the first book that I ever read- That's my read favorite kind of question. Yeah, great. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the first book I ever read on Kindle uh, was your prior book, Grand New Party, uh, that you wrote with uh, Ross Douthat, uh, whatever happened to that guy, I don't know. That that was <laughs> quite some time ago. You know, it was pre, not only pre-Trump, but pre-financial crisis. You know, as you think back about that, how has your perspective evolved since that book? And how, how well do you think that the ideas, you know, in there trying to argue that the GOP should chart a, uh, a newer course, more focused on the working class, uh, in some ways, seems like it was ahead of its time. What are your thoughts about it uh, more than a decade later? I think that there are lots of things in that book that we um, got right. You know, uh, I mean, I think that, you know, we didn't anticipate the financial crisis. Uh, Ross and I did not sell all of our stocks before it hit, you know, uh, but uh, 
Look, I mean, I think that we were basically saying that the Republican Party is evolving into a more blue-collar party, and it is vitally important that the party craft an agenda that is responsible to its voters. But, you know, I mean, I I think that that's just that that wasn't borne out. And then what happened is simple. Um, You know, Barack Obama and congressional Democrats overreached uh, in 2009 and 2010, and then there was a thermostatic reaction. There was a kind of um, big reaction in which people voted for Republicans on mass because they felt like Democrats had overreached, and also because you know partly it's just the state of the economy. And then Republicans decided, aha, the public embraces our kind of Tea Party libertarian ideals. When in fact, well, no, that's not quite right. Actually, some of the resistance to Obamacare came from folks who said, well, wait a second, wait a second, you're going to take future funds from Medicare to create a new entitlement program? Well, where is that going to leave me? Where is that going to leave you know, my family? Where is that going to leave folks who have already paid into the system? It was a very different ethic and practice. Um, but then, you know, Republicans thought, okay, you know, we'll basically keep pushing this very familiar agenda and, you know, kind of we will win elections uh, because people really, truly love us. That must be it. But then, of course, you know, there was a rude awakening in 2012. Uh, and then there was another rude awakening in 2016 when the best and the brightest, incredibly impressive Republican candidates who would cut their teeth, uh, you know, in movement world, who'd learn how to speak to donors, how to speak to the various um, Um, you know, elite Republican constituencies all got blown out of the water by someone who had a very simple message. You know, basically, I'm going to defend the safety net. I'm going to shield you from the worst aspects of globalization. uh, And we're going to have an immigration policy in the national interest. The funny thing is that, you know, Donald Trump said many inappropriate, hateful things, but actually his voters tended to disagree with him on a lot of these issues. They tended to want a somewhat softer, more modern immigration policy than they uh, than, than he did, or than he seemed to at certain times, but they felt that he got things right directionally. He wanted a national interest policy. He wanted to defend working class interests. He was not especially ideological. And, you know, you did have some Republican candidates who kind of played footsie with those ideas. Uh, you had Rick Santorum, you had Mike Huckabee, but Rick Santorum and Mike Huckabee did not get $5 billion worth of free media coverage, and Donald Trump did. So in a way, what we were arguing in Grand New Party was, look, if you don't actually do this, you're going to have someone else come along and sweep you aside. Uh, now, the thing is that Donald Trump hasn't offered that much in the way of a substantive agenda, but he did get the music right roughly speaking. And in a way, the reason I wrote this immigration book is because I am what you might call a squish on a lot of domestic policy issues. But if you're a squish on domestic policy, if you're really concerned about the fate of the American working class in an age of offshoring and automation and much else, then you've really got to think hard about having an immigration policy that is skills blind and that is excessively permissive. Because then if you're someone like me, you think about, well, what's going to happen to the second generation working class. What's going to happen to them 20, 30, 40 years ago? I'm not saying that I'm a fatalist. I believe that we can come up with an American economy that works for everyone. But I'm saying that it's not going to be automatic and it's going to take creative policy. Uh, It's going to take creative problem solving. And and so in a way, Grand New Party and Melting Pot or Civil War are books that are actually pretty closely tied together. But in this latter book, I've tried to think also about issues of culture and ethnicity and membership and how they relate to these bigger global economic questions. Well, everyone should buy them both, buy Melting Pot first, and then you can buy Grand New Party as kind of like a prequel, but not in the bad Star Wars sense of it. 
I think our little podcast is at about episode 18 or so. And if I'm not mistaken, we probably have a, a very high percentage of uh, shows with Bengalis, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> yeah, R- Razib Khan, who was on the show, noted that uh, we, uh, out of, out of uh, our 15, 16, however many guests, uh, at least three have been of specifically Bengali extraction and uh, some other South Asians as well. So there's just, <laughs> I don't there's doubt just it. In, in my personal experience, there's just a lot of uh, right wing South Asians out there in the United States. Well, this is a really interesting question because, in fact, if you so you know, my folks are from Bangladesh. A lot of other Bengali folks you've encountered uh, are likely Indian American, and uh, if you look at Indian Americans and Bangladeshi Americans, you know these are still pretty small political constituencies, but they are overwhelmingly democratic. Uh, and uh, so, the folks that you've met are uh, definitely outliers in that regard. Uh, but you know, also you know, we're we're quite possibly outliers in the sense that some of the folks you've talked to, you know, are, I imagine, like me, second generation. And that's a really, really tiny population now, but it's going to become a much bigger population, you know, 10, 15 years from now. So, you know, we'll see how that population winds up, you know, kind of emerging politically. Yeah, there, uh, they may be a liberal Democrat who has a soft spot for Modi, though. It's kind of a weird thing that I've... Oh, yeah, no, no, no. I think that that's, I think that's a very, yeah, that's a very, very true. And I think that um, also, you know, you'll see, I'm a big believer that our politics will look very different 10 years from now than they do today. And you can see early signs. Uh, for example, if you look at racial preferences and opinion on that issue, which is a whole big topic unto itself, you see that recent Chinese immigrants have very different opinions from other Asian Americans. And if you look at the Asian American category writ large, this is a group that's undergoing very big compositional change. So when you talk about Asian Americans 20 years ago to today, you know, you're really comparing apples and oranges because the composition of that population is so different. So yeah, I mean, th- this is a subject of endless interest to me, as you can imagine. 